0: Welcome to Episode 1 of the second season of Free the Seed, the open-source seed initiative podcast that tells the stories of new crop varieties and the plant breeders that develop them. I'm your host, Rachel Holtengren. If you're new to the podcast, consider checking out previous episodes from our first season. If you'd like to learn more about the open-source seed initiative's history and mission, I talk with Dr. Erwin Goldman and Dr. Claire Luby in Episode 2 about intellectual property rights and crops. In today's episode, I speak with Andrew Still of Adaptive Seeds and the Seed Ambassadors Project about his work in seed saving, open-pollinated variety maintenance, and the process of what he refers to as dehybridization. Our conversation focuses on Gypsy Queens, a variety of pepper that Andrew developed and pledged to be open source. Early in the interview, Andrew mentions the Culinary Breeding Network and NOVIC, the Northern Organic Vegetable Improvement Collaborative. We'll have links to both their websites in our show notes. Hi Andrew, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, it's good to be here.
0: Thanks so much for taking the time. Um, I'm excited to get to talk with you about Gypsy Queens. We haven't highlighted a pepper yet, so it'll be great to hear about pepper breeding generally and the specifics of this variety and your process. Maybe we could start with you describing Gypsy Queens for us. What does this pepper look like if you had it on a plate in front of you?
1: It's kind of a uh a hungarian type or um eastern european um sweet pepper um it's like a medium-sized bell in a way but it also has an elongated shape so it's kind of intermediate between a bell pepper and like an italian corno de toro type pepper it was kind of a a, a cool process of pulling it out of a, of a famous variety i guess you could say called gypsy which was a a sweet pepper hybrid from pedo seed that a lot of farmers in the Pacific Northwest found quite helpful and really, really good to grow in our not so hot climate. And it always performed well. And one of the main features of it is that it it has a nice uh, yellowish light green color when it's under ripe and it starts to ripen a little bit orangey really quick. And so it's interesting color and flavor in the early season when there's only green bell peppers about or green peppers to harvest. So mm. kind of add to that diversity of earlier season availability.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I'd i like to ask you to get into the process of dehybridizing gypsy in a minute, but maybe we could talk about how you decided to take on the project of, of doing this work and developing Gypsy Queens. Did it come out of conversations that you had with farmers around you?
1: Well, we've always uh, kind of had the plan of dehybridizing it because we like to do that with uh, cool hybrids that that we like. But the, I guess the, the inspiration really came from some work with um, the Culinary Breeding Network and Novic, the Northern Organic Variety Improvement Collaborative. Um, they had been uh, trialing sweet peppers and uh, evaluating flavor and and such and. One of their concerns was that Gypsy hybrid was going to be dropped commercially. So they were trialing varieties that were similar or could be good in other ways as a replacement. And it was kind of my like, well, if you like Gypsy, why don't I just grow it out and see what happens? And it's kind of a f- funny thing where I hadn't actually grown it for a, quite a few years. But um, a friend of ours on the coast, the farmer, Carolina Liddy, and she was growing it. And I was like, can I have some of your fruits? And I just grabbed some seeds from her and grew it out from there. And I've been growing it out for probably five or six years, I think, and just selecting it out for various traits. But, yeah, it was, it's always collaborative and, in, like, influenced from different people. And we like to take the things that we're excited about and then double down on things that other people are excited about too because we're also excited about so many particular peculiar things that, are weird. So nice to have someone else like the Culinary Breeding Network or uh, NOVIC to push us in a more appropriate direction.
0: (laughs) So it sounds like the sort of motivation was to create a potential replacement for if Gypsy was no longer carried by the seed company that was carrying it.
1: Yeah, the backstory of Gypsy is that it was bred by pedo Seed, uh, I think in the 90s, and pedo Seed was purchased by Seminus, and then Seminus was purchased by Monsanto, and a lot of organic farmers were very uncomfortable with the fact that Seminus was now owned by Monsanto and was supplying a lot of their seed. And also when these seed mergers happen, they tend to drop varieties that are only regionally popular or like more specialty varieties like Gypsy was very likely going to be dropped and there was a period of time where the seed was not easily available. I mean, I think it's still available from a couple places but for various reasons people wanted to get away from it but also still wanted it so that was really the main reason why we wanted to dehybridize it.
0: And were there any intellectual property rights that were associated with Gypsy when you started?
1: Uh, not that I know of and I believe that there isn't Partly because it's a hybrid and it was developed quite a while ago, and hybrids tend to not be patented or have too much intellectual property about them.
0: Why wouldn't a a hybrid have a patent or or other intellectual property rights associated with it?
1: Well, at the time, there wasn't as much need for patents and intellectual property because the seed company has the parent lines that make the hybrid, and those are pretty proprietary and secret. So they're the only ones that know how to make the hybrid. Therefore, they have a de facto kind of patent on it. They've doubled down on, on control and protections recently. But back then, it was common not to patent or have intellectual property about hybrids. Back then, it was more of patenting techniques for making hybrids. And I think that the patenting system that has kind of gotten out of hand recently is more of a recent development.
0: Can you define for us what dehybridization means?
1: Dehybridization is pretty much it's just taking a hybrid F1 seed that is a commercially available variety and planting it out and saving seed on it and trying to select for something that, that resembled the original variety as opposed to making a cross and trying to create something completely new. Um, I would usually say that dehybridization is to take a a hybrid that you like and make it open pollinated so you can then save seed on it and then that seed that you save isn't mixed up or variable. It's more predictable like a traditional OP or heirloom variety. So it's kind of untangling that mess of hybridization and making it more of an open pollinated line.
0: And are there reasons that farmers would prefer to grow a hybrid of a given crop?
1: Well, certain, certain types of uh, plants and species tend to have more or less benefit for being hybrids. Something like a cabbage or a broccoli, they tend to benefit a lot from hybridization. They, have, they gain a little bit of vigor and have uniformity at the same time, which is not very common for outbreeding crops. Typically, you can get one or the other uniformity or vigor. <laughs> and so hybridization is really helpful for that because you want to be able to harvest every single head of cabbage on the same day with your giant field crew in the Central Valley of California. But something like a pepper or a tomato, there's not as many big reasons for hybridization other than for the proprietary control over the variety. Um, you, you sometimes hybridization can be helpful for making certain traits more available or predictable you can achieve like a disease resistance really quickly with a hybridization as opposed to having to go through a decade of backcrossing or whatever for making it open pollinated. It can be more challenging. But I think that for self-pollinating crops, the main reason for hybridization is for the proprietary control and also the hype that goes around hybrids. A lot of farmers have been marketed to that hybrids are better because the seed companies and plant breeding companies can make more money off of the hybrids because they're a monopoly, but it's not always true. Um, some Sometimes open pollinated varieties can be just as good as hybrids.
0: So there might be benefits to a given hybrid being, or a given variety being a hybrid, but then there are also the trade-offs of it being potentially more vulnerable to loss when a seed company drops it.
1: Yeah, and seed companies drop stuff all the time for various reasons and not, not because they're bad varieties necessarily, just because they had particular reasons to do it.
0: So let's talk about the the process that you went through in this dehybridization of gypsy. You said that you started by um, taking some fruit from a friend's farm. What did you do next?
1: The first year I just planted out that F2 seed and planted up probably 30 or 40 plants just to see what it would look like. And uh, most of those plants were fairly similar. There wasn't much diversity or segregation in the F2, which was kind of a shock to me. You would have expected uh, it
0: to be more diverse?
1: I was, but I've recently kind of seen that saving seed off of F2, sometimes you don't get tons of variety coming out of them. I'm not sure exactly why, but I'm I'm guessing for Gypsy, it was because the the two parents were fairly similar to begin with.
0: Mm-hmm. So there so wasn't the, a lot of genetic diversity in the parents that created the hybrid.
1: Yeah, and they, they might have even been like sibling inbred lines um, and might not have had much variation between them at all. So um, I did see a little bit of variation, but it wasn't that significant. Mostly what I did was I saved seed off of a few of those plants that seemed to be the most healthy and vigorous because there wasn't too much bad in that first population. I did that kind of positive selection on a few plants just to go for vigor and production and health. And and then I planted out the F3 uh, the following year.
0: How many times did you go into the field to look at that plot of plants and evaluate what you were looking for?
1: It was uh, at a time when we were growing uh, market vegetables for a CSA, and we would take vegetables to town. Our seed company was pretty small at the time, and we had to make a living being market farmers. And so I probably would go there every couple weeks and look at stuff, and we would harvest fruit off of some of the plants. I guess the selection process really did start in the greenhouse when we planted out the plants, and we tried to make sure that no low-vigor seed was up-potted into pots to, for transplant. And if there was any particular plants, transplants that were weak or sick, we definitely did not plant those out. And so we like just the typical, like every time you get a chance to look at it, you give a look. But the first year of doing it, there wasn't a ton to do. It was just like, oh, wow, this is a slightly variable version of gypsy. This is kind of cool. It's, it was pretty easy.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you were out in the field, how did you mark the plants that you thought looked the best or had the most fruit or the best vigor?
1: Well, I guess first thing I'd, we would do is just put a flag on the plants that we wanted for stock seed for for replanting. And, and when we flagged a plant, that plant typically wasn't harvested for market. And so it would uh, ripen up a good amount of seed and not have uh, someone else on the farm come and pick all the fruit, which is... Always attention when you're growing vegetables on a farm for sale and doing plant breeding or seed saving. It's been a a little bit of a challenge to organize that over the years. But we pretty much just flagged what we wanted and didn't weren't really concerned with making sure it's self-pollinated or cross because we were hustling on being a vegetable farm. We didn't have tons of time to emasculate flowers or self-pollinate things or whatnot. I guess we could have caged it. That would have been helpful, but also maybe not.
0: So, if you had caged it, then then insects couldn't have come and visited the flowers of a specific plant and then visited the flowers of another plant and transferred pollen between those plants. Um, how often do pepper plants outcross or how often do insects come and move pollen around in the field?
1: Well, peppers are kind of the intermediate between self pollinating and outcrossing, and uh, we've seen anywhere from. 20% to 50% crossing, but depends on the conditions and the particular fruit. Uh, we, we usually expect there to be up to 30% crossing between plants nearby, and any plants that are within like a couple hundred feet will probably be a little bit cross crossing. But also know, knowing that a majority of the seed in the fruit is, has been self-pollinated is an interesting fact to think about when observing the next generation
0: and if you see more variation or plants that are much more different than their neighbors in the next generation, do you assume that those are outcrosses and you pull those out?
1: Uh, sometimes. It depends on the project. But for Gypsy Queens, what it ended up doing was the third generation, I noticed that they were starting to be a little bit more unique from each other. And some of the fruits were a little bit longer and some of them were a little bit smaller. And... Some plants were more pointy and others were more blocky on the end, more of a blunt end. So I decided that I would remove all of the little fruit and remove all of the like really long giant fruits and just go for the few that were kind of similar to the original gypsy, like kind of a medium size. And I selected a couple plants that were pointy predominantly and others that, and I selected a couple plants that were blocky and I put them in two different packets and Replanted them the following season as two different lines.
0: Does Gypsy have more pointed or more blocky fruit?
1: Uh, that might be the main difference between the hybrid and the Gypsy Queens now because Gypsy was kind of uh, a little bit pointy and a little bit blocky, but most of the fruit were not, they weren't p- particularly pointy or blocky. So Gypsy Queens now, the reason I call it Gypsy Queens plurals, because I kind of let some of the blocky plants and some of the pointy plants in the population, and so it's still slightly variable, and I kind of like it that way.
0: Hmm. What are some other differences between Gypsy Queens and, and the hybrid at this point?
1: At this point, um, the hybrid was had a little bit more of a lime green, yellow wax color, and the gypsy queens is um, not as not as green when the fruit is underripe it's more of a classic yellowy wax with a faint lime green tone to it not as uh, yellow waxy as some of the, the hungarian sweet peppers that we grow but we selected inadvertently for the more bright yellowy types than the, the slightly lime green ones
0: have you done much taste testing to compare the two
1: yeah, we tasted them. There's not too much difference. It seemed like when we've done taste tests and selections for flavor, it's interesting that to us that the fruit color tends to carry a little bit more of the flavor than between different plants of the same color. We haven't noticed hardly any flavor difference between, between any of the, the plants that we've been growing for Gypsy Queens. But I imagine that there might be a slight flavor difference between the hybrid and what Gypsy Queens is now just because the hybrid had more of that lime greeniness when it was underripe. But not too drastic. I'm always looking for really good flavor differentiation to select from, and Gypsy Queens was uh, pretty stable for flavor.
0: Would you taste the fruit when you were out in the field picking fruit from the plants, or would you bring them in and have a more structured sort of taste-testing process?
1: Well, for Gypsy Queens, it was uh, more of a just take a bite out of a fruit, from each plant, mostly just trying to make sure it didn't have like any off flavors or taste bad because it was pretty good the way it was. It's like, we we do a lot of seed saving classes. And part of the seed saving classes, we teach selection and stewardship. And we tell people like, don't save seed from a hybrid unless you want a seed saving project or a plant breeding project. But sometimes that can be really fun and be really easy, like with Gypsy Queens, whereas something like a, we've uh, tried to dehybridize, on Gold Tomato, that might be a lifelong process to to find something stable and predictable.
0: And that has to yeah. do with the like we talked about earlier—the genetic diversity between the parents that created the hybrid in the first place.
1: Yeah, that's my—that's what I'm assuming for sure.
0: So, if somebody were to want to save seeds from a hybrid and potentially take on a seed saving and plant breeding project, is there any way that they would know? before they got started, whether their project was going to end up more like Gypsy Queens or more like the Sun Gold project that you described?
1: There's not really a way to know unless you uh, hear from someone else that attempted it or you just have to plant it out and see. I'm always surprised, actually, whenever we do any of that because it's different every time.
0: So folks might not know exactly how much of an adventure they're signing up for.
1: Yeah. Um, And that's part of the fun of it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the catalog description notes that you've been working on this project for about four generations. And I'm curious how you decided that the seed was ready to sell, that you were in a place where the variety was stable enough that you wanted to share it with farmers.
1: Well, we kind of make that decision per variety. But with Gypsy Queens, it was quite useful and quite interesting Mm -hmm. just right after the third generation. So we just started selling the seed, but also noting that there was some variation in the population and the variety description. And I think that if you just make sure to tell people that it's not a purebred pedigree or um, stable variety, that most people are pretty excited about that. And with something like uh, the variation that it had was not necessarily a problem even for farmers to plant because you get good peppers from every plant and there's only a slight bit of difference between plants. And some, some things, depending on your goals, like you, you don't want any hot pepper genes in your sweet peppers, for example, that would be bad diversity for most people. But um, a little bit of, of variation, I think, can be really beneficial and interesting.
0: Do you think that in the future you'll narrow the variety down to a more consistent fruit shape? whether that be pointy or blocky, or do you think you'll keep it with that diversity in it?
1: I kind I haven't decided yet. That's, that's a good question because I've been kind of mulling it about. What we've been doing is continuing the process of planting what I've been calling progeny blocks, where we save seed off of some of the best blocky fruits and some of the best pointy fruits and plant the two types in different blocks, maybe like 10 feet apart from each other. And so there's going to be a little bit of crossing between the two um, groups, but mostly they're going to be crossing within the blocky group and and also crossing within the uh, pointy group. And I've kind of... So every year we've been growing it out, we've been selecting out more uniformly blocky fruit in one group and more uniformly pointy fruit, but... I've been more and more attracted to the pointier fruit than the blockier fruit, but I've definitely heard from a few people that they like the blockier fruit, but I'm not really sure why, so maybe um, I'll just leave them together, but my inclination would be to just select it out for a uniformly pointy variety. I haven't decided yet.
0: (laughs) You said that you'd gotten feedback from some people about liking the blockier end type. Yeah. What other sort of feedback have you gotten from farmers that have grown Gypsy Queens? Well, um, some
1: farmers are really excited that there's the open pollinated version, and they've been pretty happy with it. I haven't received really any complaints about it. Like My general takeaway from talking to farmers and having grown it ourselves for market is that gypsy in general is not the most tasty pepper. It's not the most beautiful pepper, but it's by far the, the least frustrating sweet pepper. It's doesn't get much blossom end rod it ripens up fairly easily it it doesn't set fruit in the middle of the plant and break the plant in half when the fruits get big and bell peppers and sweet peppers are often really just frustrating to grow as a farmer and gypsy queen is so much easier and pleasant and like just does its job that that fact alone makes it really a valuable variety
0: where are the fields where you're doing this work
1: um, we have our home farm uh, where we live and grow our most of our seed, adaptive seeds, and it's outside of uh, Sweet Home, Oregon, kind of the southern, eastern Willamette Valley. That's where most of the work has been done for Gypsy Queens.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you describe the climate there?
1: The Willamette Valley is kind of an ideal place for growing seed. Uh, We have a nice warm summer, not too hot, usually stays in the 80s during the summer. It's nice and dry all summer, maritime kind of Mediterranean climate where it's dry and, and warm in the summer, but also rainy and cool during the winter. So a lot of people grow seed here for biennials like cabbage and onions and chicories and Seeds and stuff like that that likes to go over through the winter and wants cold but not too cold and then make seed in the dry summer for convenient dry harvests. A lot of uh, crops that grow really well in the Midwest don't produce very good seed there because they kind of have the opposite climate or they have a dry cold winter and a humid wet summer hot summer and when you're maturing dry seed it's not very convenient to have it be thunderstorming and pouring rain when you're trying to harvest your seed. Uh, so the Willamette Valley and just the West Coast in general has been quite a important place to grow those those kinds of seeds.
0: Mm-hmm. Peppers that do well in the Willamette Valley, not just for seed but for fruit production, would they do well in other parts of the country?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you can't ever be completely sure because we're so particularly dry and, and moderately warm here that if you were to plant our peppers in, let's say, the, the southeast of the United States, you might have different disease pressures and issues there that we don't necessarily have here to select for. And we've heard good feedback that our peppers grow well most places, but definitely no guarantees When when something has been bred and selected in a particular climate, it tends to be adapted to that those conditions.
0: Mm-hmm. So would you say that Gypsy Queens, given the feedback that you've heard from farmers and your experience growing it, is a good replacement for the hybrid that it's re- it's intending to replace?
1: I think so, partly because it's so similar to the original and um, it just grows well and easy. There's always room for other people to, to do it too and, and see if they get something quite different. And you never know for sure if it's if it's going to turn out quite different or not, but uh, there's always that possibility. So I always encourage people to to dehybridize it in their climate too, just to, to have more diversity available and more interesting stuff to choose from.
0: Mm-hmm. So if somebody were to grow gypsy in Florida, they could go through this process of creating an open pollinated variety from gypsy and they might end up with something that's a little bit different from gypsy queens.
1: Yeah especially when it comes to like particular genes that might be important for disease resistance or like a leaf architecture that sheds water better in humid climates or like, who knows, it's kind of hard to predict, but there's a lot of things that I didn't select for that maybe I lost. Maybe I uh, accidentally or inadvertently removed them from the population where somewhere else that trait or gene might've been really helpful for them hard to know unless we all become plant breeders in our own ways and in our own climates.
0: So this variety, you've pledged to be open source with the Open Source Seed Initiative, and you've been involved with Aussie for a while. Maybe you could talk about why it was important to you to pledge Gypsy Queens as open source.
1: Well, I I was drawn to the Open Source Seed Initiative because I've always kind of been bothered by the whole patent system and plant variety protection and copyright and just that that whole intellectual property milieu I've been always a critic of and always uncomfortable with, partly because I see it as a kind of a theft from the commons that we've communally inherited. I've always thought that I've benefited a lot in the past from people sharing seeds with me and people being open and non-proprietary with stuff that I feel like an obligation in a way to continue passing that on myself because it's almost like a golden rule of sorts. of like, I really want to help people the way that they've helped me. And maybe that'll inspire other people to also be sharing and and generous in the future. I see open source seed as a way to transform the culture of plant breeding and seed in the world and as a way to uh, kind of celebrate the abundance and our inheritance from the past in a way that makes it open and free for other people to use. It just seems like a no-brainer, in a, in a sense, to pledge things open source and kind of impose that giving. <laughs> it's just kind of a funny way to think about it.
0: You, you talk about other people having shared seeds with you. Can you tell us about the Seed Ambassadors project that you're a part of?
1: Yeah, we when we were um, farm hands working uh, on other people's farms when we first got into organic farming we we always had seed saving projects on the side and we're always had our own little gardens at different farms that generously shared space for us to uh, play with seeds on the weekends and after working for years as farm laborers and interns and such we took our savings and went traveling in the winter time and one of our first places we went traveling was, uh, Europe, Northern and Central Europe, where we decided to, instead of just be tourists during our seasonal unemployment, that we would also, uh, go share seeds and like go to seed swaps and meet seed savers and learn from people and share our knowledge along the way. And we actually, in 2006, 2007, traveled through, um, seven or eight countries and collected seeds and, met with dozens of seed companies and seed saver groups and uh, we ended up collecting over 800 varieties of seeds that first trip and imported them successfully in the United States and started trialing seeds that next year during the summer. And um, that seed ambassadors project kind of led to us starting a seed company in the end because we ended up with so much seed that we wanted to get around and share with other people, cool stuff that we'd found that wasn't available other places that seemed almost compelled to start a seed company, having given seeds to people over the years and received seeds in return. And um, it just, it feels so good. And it seems so um, healthy for the food system. And one of the things that always shocked us is every country we've been to, we've been to probably a dozen countries all over the, the world over the years. Everywhere we've been, there's this kind of universal language of seed saving and seed gifting and sharing. And We'd go to places and open a bag of seeds and be like, here, try some of this cool, these cool varieties that we brought to share with you. And people would be like, I didn't know this was a seed swap. And they would drop everything and go run home and get their seeds and bring seeds back and have impromptu seed swaps. And it's, uh, it's really kind of great to know that most of humanity is still connected in that way. And we, we seem to speak a similar language when it comes to plants and sharing.
0: So sharing seed has been pretty fundamental to your work for a long time. Yeah,
1: definitely. And I want to uh, encourage it more and more because it's so beautiful and and fun. And also, I think it's necessary to uh, create a more resilient food system in the end. The more and more we, we rely on an industrial, vertically integrated and centralized food system, the more precarious society becomes. And I think that we we need to diversify it and have more diversity of farms and diversity of seeds. And that's partly why we adaptive seeds, we like to say we're trying to bring biodiversity back. That's not just as like a like an heirloom gardener kind of way, which is wonderful by itself, but bring biodiversity back into the food we eat and food that people sell and really make the, the, the whole food system in general more resilient. That's kind of Why we do what we do in the end, I think.
0: On that note, would you have advice for anybody who's considering getting into seed saving or plant breeding?
1: Advice. Um, well some advice that I was given was just start saving seed, start making crosses. See see if you like it and see where it takes you. These things tend to be addictive (laughs) and and you tend to want to do more of it the next year and pretty soon you have hundreds of varieties and you're starting your own seed company, which I think is beautiful and wonderful.
0: How many different varieties have you developed? Uh, we've
1: developed, uh, I don't know, maybe a dozen. It's kind of hard to say because a lot of the varieties that we carry are not necessarily um, pedigrees in a sense of uh, that we've bred them ourselves in in like a classical sense, but we tend to sell a lot of and grow out a lot of uh, populations that are variable. And so we do a lot of stewarding of diverse populations. So they're not particularly varieties that were finished developing. But every year when we plant out a new seed crop of it, we select it for quality and rogue out off-type. And we have, we have quite a few varieties like that that, that I'm really proud of and also excited about for the future because every time we grow them it's 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 a new experience and it's fun and we get to uh see unique stuff coming out of them
0: that's a really interesting point you make that even in just stewarding and maintaining open pollinated varieties populations that there is some amount of of influence that a seed saver has there that there is selection that you're doing in evaluation and in selecting the plants that you want to take forward because they represent the, the variety that you have in mind or roguing out the ones that don't fit with what you imagine that variety to be ideally that you're having the sort of influence that a plant breeder has even if you didn't make a cross and start selecting with a plant breeding project in mind.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of the the type of plant breeding that um, all of our ancestors participated in throughout thousands of years of plant breeding, where you just select what you like and replant the things that were best or worked for you. And and that's really just stewardship of, of a variety in the end. And I like to think of plant breeding and seed stewardship as a, a continuum. And there's no real difference between the ends of that continuum because plant breeding is stewardship. And Stewardship is kind of plant breeding, and it's just a different level of, uh, of focus, I guess. And that's why we really, really loved working with open-pollinated plants is because it's never ending. It's just you're always improving things, and you're always selecting for what you like and kind of artistic and technical all at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm. Before we wrap up our conversation, is there anything else you'd like to tell listeners about the Gypsy Queens Project?
1: I think that Gypsy Queens is kind of an example of how easy plant breeding can be. And coming from being seed farmers primarily and plant breeders on the side, it's an example of how other farmers could possibly be plant breeders and and do these projects and have it not take over their whole lives and distract them from, from what's more important in the moment of being a farmer, growing and selling food. But I think that it fit really well within our system because we could be plant breeders and farmers at the same time. And we could sell the seed at the same time as we're growing it out and improving it over time. It's hard for us to pay for plant breeding as a small seed company and seed farm. So selling the variety while it's being developed is a really good way to like offset some of the costs and make it a viable product in the meantime while it's being developed. And I think that People tend to think of plant breeding as this like scientists in a lab coat doing all this work for a decade and then releasing this perfect finished thing. And that's, I think, an, a little bit of an old-fashioned or a way of looking at plant breeding that is particular to an economic system that can afford to breed that way. And I, I feel that farmer plant breeders and farmer seed stewards don't necessarily have that opportunity or even necessarily a need to do it that way. And also, depending on your techniques and plant breeding style, um, you tend to end up with different types of plants in the end that you breed. And the, the plants that are bred in, in that hyper-proprietary, kind of a laboratory model of almost like releasing a new pharmaceutical drug at the end of a couple years of testing like that's a different kind of plant that's going to be, it's going to be a different archetype in a way than what a farmer seed steward might release. And I really love that, the beauty that can be created from different methods and and how plants tend to resemble their stewards over the years. And the, the, the values that different plant breeders have tend to determine the kind of plant that results from their breeding style. And it's just really exciting and wonderful. And I just want more people to, to to dabble and play and get super obsessed and breed stuff in labs and do crazy things out in the field. And the more, the better, really. And I think that Gypsy Queens uh, symbolizes a little bit of that and how there's so many different ways to do things.
0: I'm really glad that you said that. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, you're. It's, it's evident that you're really passionate about plant breeding and biodiversity. And I feel like that was a really great, like... Call to arms or call to hose, I guess. Call to yeah, field yeah. tools. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been really great to hear about this project and about all of the the plant breeding and seed stewardship work that you've been doing at Adaptive Seeds. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me. And it's really nice to hear so many other stories of interesting plant breeders and and the, and the crops that they're breeding as well. It's always inspirational for me to listen. So thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. I've been speaking today with Andrew Still about Gypsy Queens. To find seed of Gypsy Queens or any of the other varieties that Adaptive Seeds maintains, please visit their website at www.adaptiveseeds.com. You can learn more about the Seed Ambassadors project at www.seedambassadors.org. Be sure to check out our show notes on the Open Source Seed Initiative's website at www.osseeds.org for links and photos of gypsy queens. You can also download the full transcript of each episode there. We've also added a glossary to the show notes, giving definitions of plant breeding terms that come up in this episode. You can find and like the Open Source Seed Initiative on Facebook, and subscribe to Free the Seed wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. I want to say a very special thanks to Andrew, not only for being my guest on this episode, but for his help with some of the technical aspects of putting this podcast out into the world. Lastly, we have a brief survey that we're asking listeners to fill out to let us know what you think of the show. We'd be happy to hear any and all thoughts. You can find a link to the survey on the Aussie website and on their Facebook page. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm your host, Rachel Holtengren, and this has been Free the Seed.